Welcome to the Liberation Lab podcast, insights and interviews for the disruptive educator. I am honored, honored, y'all, to have my guest. I'm going to let her introduce herself, so why don't you tell the people who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Absolutely. Thank you, Bobby, for having me on this platform. Um, I'm Crystal Hardy Allen. I am a friend of Bobby and the Liberation Lab, um, and I am a native of historic Selma, Alabama, a former teacher and school principal, um, and currently serve as a full-time um, entrepreneur. Um, I lead a social impact uh, consulting firm that is really focused on uh, building the capacity of organizations and individual leaders that we work with. And I'm a new author as well. <laughs> yes. We're going to get into that. I am so excited and thrilled for you uh, for this this labor of love that is coming out. Uh, we're going to tell the people all about it in just a minute. But I want them to get to know my friend, Crystal Allen. Uh, um, and and what I want to do is kind of take because I know what the work that you do and the work that you are doing and putting out in this book comes from your experiences in and through schools and then your work even now professionally. Mm -hmm. So I want to take a trip back, back in time before mm -hmm. school leader, yeah. before um, all the, the things that we know now, yeah. I want to take a trip back in time and, and, and just get a glimpse of what your schooling experience was like. Mm -hmm. um, That's such a great question. And, and I, and I want to and, and put all my cards on the table because mm -hmm. The reason I asked this question comes from something that Dr. Monique Kofson said, um, then Dr. Monique Morris in her book, Push Out. She talks about how, for, she used the analogy of, you know, regrettably what happened with Tamir Rice, mm -hmm. how he was at the park, he was pushed out the system of education, and because he was pushed out, he was in this vulnerable place. Cops mm -hmm. come up, he's done, right? He's, yeah. he's gone. Yep. But his sister was there, too. She was also suspended. She was also pushed out. And so how often we'll look and we'll miss how we're adult, you know, adultifying and all these things to black girls in schools. And so I would love mm -hmm. to just hear what was your experience like in school um, mm. and, and, you know, what your what your lens was like? Yeah, that I love that question, Bobby, first of all, and the framing. And I will tell you. It is powerful to sit and reflect on the past and the implications that it has for your present. And when I think back to my elementary school teachers alone, they were a cadre of incredible Black women who were graduates of local historically Black colleges and universities. They were Greek. They were from Selma. They would have made decisions to come back to Selma and be teachers. And um, I knew as a dark skinned black girl in the country, right, in rural mm -hmm. Alabama, that they were they were superheroes and quite magical to me. I used to watch the Power Rangers, right? And I uh, watched a lot of different shows and I would think about the awe and wonder I had. And then I would think about the awe and wonder in my eyes and in my spirit as a little girl, seeing them. Like I used to pay attention to how they carried themselves, what they wore, how they spoke, 
how they talked about their alma maters. My two fifth grade tw- teachers were fraternal twins, black mm. women um, from rural Alabama. And they both were proud Tuskegee University graduates. And they were women of Delta Sigma Theta sorority. And they were the first in their families to go to college. And I think about how everything that is the epitome of culturally responsive pedagogy, they mm. did and they modeled. And, you know, everything from having us practice speaking with your head up and memorizing poems from Dr. Maya Angelou. None of this stuff was in the Alabama curriculum or standard. Mm. It was what they wanted us to do and field trips they took us on, um, you know, to, to see powerful images of, of ourselves. Right. And so I think about that and I think about the open conversations they used to have with us about racial pride and also racial injustice to the point that then when I had a few white teachers along the way, some were at that time, I can say allies, right? And like genuinely loved what they did and taught from a good place. Some of them were racist and and as a child, I didn't have the precise language all the time yeah. to say that what they said was a microaggression yeah. or problematic, but I knew it was wrong. And I had a resentment at an early age for some of them, like yeah. unapologetically, I will openly talk to my grandma and mom about I'm like, I don't like me so-and-so because she don't like black kids. Like this is me as a nine, 10 year old telling my parents and their parents this, right? And so it's funny because fast forward, my family will tell you that who I am today and who I've been over time in terms of at times being silenced or punished or having professional consequences for standing up for what I believe in is the epitome of who I've been my entire life. You know, and they're like, you can't say that. <laughs> you can't do that. And like, yeah, we see it. But, you know, don't say nothing. Just do your work, you know. And so yeah. I say all that to say, when I reflect on my schooling, I reflect on an environment that loved Black children and gave us permission to learn who we were and to be proud of who we were. Hmm. And those seeds were so deeply rooted in me, Bobby, that as I grew older and even today, I recognize the gift and the anomaly of that environment. And and why at times I meet people and I recognize that they are products of their environment too. And their environment, particularly if they are black, may not have been one in which racial pride was centered. Yeah. Or it it or like their blackness was welcomed, right? And that's no fault of their own, but I can I can tell when it is rooted in them, particularly as educators, because what it did for me, Bobby, as an educational leader, it shaped my philosophy and approach to education. So there were initiatives that I led as a school principal and even things I did as a teacher that I recognized had nothing to do with my teacher preparation program, had everything to do with me having an inherent understanding that black children need this. Wow. Wow. You know, as I listen to you, a couple of things jump out. First is how much 
we might overlook or don't put enough stock in not just representation, but almost the the embodiment of, you know, you, you talk about watching those you know, those black women educators, yes, what they right. talked about, their pride. Yes. They then there was something that they were vibing at a certain frequency that you wanted to tune into. I did. I was like, I want to be like them. Like, and that is no insult to my mom, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or my father or my aunts. But I wanted to be like my teachers. And as an educator now, I reflect on then the power that I wanted to emulate them and not even my own mother. Hmm. And I don't know that that was about classism or a role or a title, but it was just, they exuded a wonder. Yeah. That's like, it. you know what I'm saying? That was different. And my mother was a product of, of the systemic things that she was a, a part of, right? Like she worked, yeah. she hustled, worked three jobs, you know? And so she wasn't always emotionally and mentally present for me, even though she was physically present. And so yeah. she did the best she could. Yeah. Um, it was an amazing mom. Right. But she wasn't them, but it, it, I appreciated what I got in those different spaces. I knew what I got from my mom and I knew what I got from Miss Moody, right? Mm. Or Brown or Miss mm-hmm. Jackson. And all of them saved me. You know, seeing the impact of racism, systemic oppression and the mm-hmm. like on your mom, right? And then the the wonder and and um the embodiment of those things that you saw in your teachers, it makes me think of how easy it is for folks on the outside of a situation to, to look at, to denigrate or to not see the whole picture Mm -hmm. when it comes to black folks in general, because Mm -hmm. they may not recognize the impact that, you know, all those things has on our psyche, how we look at the world, how we interact with others and then label us according to their understanding of the world because they haven't necessarily experienced what we have. That's right. Um, And how much we might be doing that in our schools. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. um, I had a conversation with Brittany Janae Kess of Liberated Love Notes. Uh, that podcast actually came out the day of this recording. Okay. And we were talking about the uh, Ijoma Alu's book, So You Want to Talk About Race. Mm-hmm. And in that book, she uses this analogy of a woman walking. Um, and the woman is walking and a person comes up and punches her in her arm. Right? She keeps walking. Another person comes up and punches her in her arm. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, she's going to flinch before the next person hits her because she's been conditioned to believe that the next person is going to do what the last person did. And our students in schools, our folks who've experienced different systemic and institutional ills of our world are flinching before they get hit and then getting labeled for it. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. I've never heard that analogy and I love it because it's true. It's true. It's 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 the equivalent of a traumatic response. 
you know? Mm. And I can think of being in a car accident years ago and it took me some months to feel comfortable driving again and driving, not just driving, but driving in that same area that the car accident happened Mm. and on the interstate because that's where it happened. And so I'm just like, and I, I would flinch. Like, even when people would move, you know, like switching lanes, if they yeah. were coming on my left side, like, I would have a reaction for a while. And mm-hmm. it was the aftermath of that accident. And it's the same. Yeah. It's the same, you know, which mm-hmm. is why we have to be gentle with ourselves as well as gentle with other people because you don't know what people are dealing with and what they're going through. The the call that rests on educators and, you know, specifically talking to them at this point to say, mm-hmm. man, there might be so much that you're missing underneath the surface. Yeah. That you, you may be experiencing a traumatic response to something that you may not have caused. Yes. Yet as educators, if love is your, if your leadership and love intersects in such a way you will find a, a a pull to a collective responsibility for that child, even though you didn't cause the pain. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like I, I have students yeah. today who are experiencing, who have experienced and who feel some type of way about school in general, who have ideas about what an assistant principal is. And because I care or because I'll, you know, I'll still hold you accountable while giving you a hug. Does that make sense? And and, and because of that, oh, I experience them responding to what they think is going to happen before it even happens. That's right. If I'm having a conversation, they're going to fly off the handle. And I'm like, wait, did I even say anything like that? Like, hold on. Right. Did I? Right. Is there anything that I said that made you feel that way just now? Right. And right. they have to pause and reflect and think, no, there isn't. I just went that way. But why? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we come back and have a real conversation in the moment because before that moment, they weren't even talking to me. They yeah. were just talking to the pain they experienced before me. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, which brings me to 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 a question that I want to ask you. So now you 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 have this pedigree of what I'll say is black excellence. You see these educators doing just wonderful things for you know, culturally responsive pedagogy before it became a trendy word. They were doing this thing and, mm-hmm. and then it affects you now as, yeah. as a leader. Yeah. When, when did you know, like school education serving? Cause that, you know, that in terms of your journey, when did you know that's what you wanted to do? And, and, and why? Like, talk to me about that aspect of yeah. your journey. I have uh, two quick answers to that. And one is, um, as a child, I interestingly wanted to be a teacher. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of it was because I looked up to several of my teachers and saw them in mentor-like figures. And I say that because, Bobby, I would get Barbie dolls even if they had clothes on or no clothes, <laughs> I'll get teddy bears. Mm-hmm. We we had um, a dog who had some puppies and I literally was outside and my mama came and got me one time and I was like, 
They won't sit still. They keep getting up and move. She said, it's their baby dogs. They need to walk around like, come on, come back over here. And I had like a little play chalkboard with like chalk. And I'm like writing and teaching. And so it's funny because I felt the same admiration and closeness to my Sunday school teacher at church. And then also, I, I just, I, I, as I think back to my life um, experiences, you know, my, my mother was in my community, was really intentional about the fact that even though we were living in poverty, right? Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. in what would be considered too Alabama's like poorest region of the whole state. Yeah. We were big and rich in community and like giving kids positive experiences, right? So, you know, at the, the kids in the neighborhood, you're going to be in church and there was yeah. going to be. You and you you had to participate in something, whether you were in the junior choir, the junior usher board, Sunday school group. Like I've I've always been in spaces where there was some activity and programming mm-hmm. for black kids. Um, mm-hmm. And then my mom put me in a small um, Girl Scout troop that was in our county too. And same thing. This was a black woman who was from Selma who had went off to school somewhere, came back. And it was her way to give back to the community was to form like our first ever Girl Scout troop. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she did these different things. Like she took us to the woods. We camped. We like did all kinds of stuff. And I reflect back to the fact that me practicing being a teacher and playing with little cousins, puppies, Barbie dolls or whatever was me emulating, again, teachers and educational figures in my life, because that to me was the dream. Hmm. It was like literally the dream. And to be honest with you, within rural communities and black rural communities in our country, mm-hmm. teaching and education is still a deeply honored profession that has a lot of reverence and respect in the way that a pastor is revered in a small town community. So mm-hmm. for me, it was like black excellence was teaching and it was community work because in my hometown, the other folks that I saw were not black. So my dentist was a white guy. My, this was that. And so I didn't necessarily see black figures across yeah. professional lines. I saw them in education. Yeah. And so even though that wasn't intentional, um, in a sense that I know that there are black people who would want to do a whole lot of things, right? Like it, it produced within me this onus of like seeing education in such a high and noble place, which is why when I reflect is what I want it to be. I'm like, that's what it means to make it. Like I literally had that thinking in my mind, like, you can become a teacher, you become like a principal or whatever. Like they were like many guys with a G in my in my head and in my community. Um, and they were the middle class because my family and many families around us, they were not college graduates. They were like working class and were very poor. Right. So then the teachers and the people in the education space were seen to be black people who had something. Right. And yeah. Yeah. but it wasn't. It wasn't just about like having something in terms of material things, right? Which is why why I see 
such a shift in our current societal notion of what it means to be an educator or a principal, or whatever. Like they had social status yep. with social responsibility. Like they weren't just like, ooh, I'm a Delta. I went to Tuskegee. I think I'm better than you and your family. It was, I went here and I've risen to a certain place and it is understood that I seed back. Yeah. Like it's my responsibility to help pull more black children into what I got to experience. Yes. And that's a different mindset. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And and I, and totally. commitment to community uplift. I, I I so affirm that. And I think, you know, for our listeners who, you know, may have heard you say, you know, that they had the status of a pastor, maybe mm-hmm. maybe they they may not get where that comes from. I would, I just wanted to give them yeah, a peek behind break the that curtain. Down, yeah. Because if you are part of a community of people who have been, who've had their image, who've had their dignity, mm-hmm. who have had um, all of their excellence in terms of social capital yep. ripped from them yep. and been replaced with the idea of the poor black mother, the, 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 the child that can't listen and gets pushed or suspended out of school. Mm-hmm. All of these images come to mind because we've been socialized to believe that that's what black means. Yeah. So in black communities, when we formed, you know, and had spaces where we could honor each other, where yeah. we could see greatness in each other. We did that with things like the pastorate because it was the place where a black man could stand and his wisdom, knowledge, um, the skill that he had to begin to communicate a message, whatever that was, that was honored in that space where it would not be honored anywhere else. And so That's together right. we made sure to say, you know, that is pastors. And we put all the accolades on yes. it. Reverend, Dr., yes. All the things, because we knew outside of that moment, he would not experience that. Yes. And the respect behind it, like the pastor was coming around. It was like you you were straightened up a little bit more or there's certain, you know, even when you think about use of profanity, like people wouldn't cuss around the pastor. It was just it was like a holy there's a dynamic of like high regard and respect. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That was there. Um things are different, you know, now in many communities, but like decades ago, that was just a very revered role. And in my community, educator, black educators were revered Mm -hmm. in the same way um, with just a lot of dignity and respect. And you really think about it. it, There's so many roots, not just to like the civil rights era, but even reconstruction and like, Mm-hmm. If you look at black educators like Mary McLeod Bethune, right? Or if you think about even Booker T. Washington or whatever, like they were the scholars of the time. Yep. You yep. know, and they were freedom fighters um, in our community. And and the there was a precedent to there was a 
an honoring. There was a, an homage to be paid to folks mm-hmm. who have navigated and traversed all that these yet to be United States of America offered to black yeah. people yeah. and still rose, still climbed, still had attained some type of profession, whether that be that we, we, we knew what it took and we honored the journey and honored the result of that journey. That's right. That's so right and so real. And, yeah. you know, it, it's interesting we're talking about this because um, in my first book, that's what I'm speaking, because the Lord may have more Come on now. in there, right? Come on now. Like, what goes unspoken, this educational, you know, version of it particularly is focused on unearthing the realities of so many different social um, injustices and Mm -hmm. social realities that still permeate our educational system, such as classism and Mm. sexism and colorism Mm. and, you know, homophobia and xenophobia, Mm -hmm. like a lot of different things, to Mm -hmm. then say, what does it look like in each area of schooling and education to operationalize, or in other words, move from, you know, theory to concrete practices, um, but to to, to operationalize equity and inclusion and belonging and all of these things. and so I'm glad we're having this conversation because there are layers of those dynamics within the conversation we've had. Yeah. You know, like you, you there, there's layers of like geography, right? And like, what are some realities mm-hmm. and dynamics of education in rural spaces versus urban? Um, there's financial or socioeconomic dynamics at play that still yeah. are at play still. within schools today. And um, and even cultural ones from a racial standpoint, you know, because you have all types of communities, whether they are like Southern Black, whether they are like Jamaican, Dominican, you know, Honduran, et cetera, like so many nuances of people's yeah. culture that then play out in schools. Yes, yes. And we can be and, more intentional, you know what I'm saying, about creating a space in which all of that feels right and welcome and nurtured and amplified and just done right by, you know? And I, and I love that you're pushing us here because I've, I've been doing a lot of thinking, both in my work as, you know, in the consultancy and speaking and all of that, but also just as a school leader, how often... Things like equity, the word equity, the practice of equity kind of loses its power because we will, one, I'll say complacency sets in. And I think complacency is this enemy in education that we don't talk enough about of about. We don't identify enough. So I want to I want to I want to go there. But but secondly, I think it happens because we talk about global equity, but we don't make it a granular practice. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I will 
I will cry out against the systemic injustices that we see in our world. The yeah. fact that the funding formulas for our schools lead to disproportionate funding, particularly for, you know, black and brown children. Mm -hmm. Right. We'll talk about those things. And those are reality. And I don't want to bypass any of that. Yeah. At the same time, we don't talk enough about the teacher who will go into their class and because of their, whether it be internalized misogyny or misogyny, mm -hmm. will see, highlight, celebrate the answers that the men might say in the class, but leave out the brilliance of our young girls mm -hmm. or because uh, they might see the young women sitting in their seats and doing this. And that's how they recognize intelligence when yeah. the young man who can't sit still though, though now we got this over classification over diagnosis of young oh, black men yeah. in special education. Mm -hmm. But that started with a belief mm -hmm. that started with how we see people. Mm -hmm. And so belief always precedes behavior and the behavior becomes the, the, the thing that we cry out against in terms of our systems, but it is yeah. always personal at first. It's always mm -hmm. a, a choice that we're making. Does that oh, make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. You know, I do think that um, as much as I am an achiever, Bobby, mm -hmm. and have been socialized to enjoy the separation of black and white, right? Yeah. Like, what is the answer? What is it not? <laughs> yeah. Life in the gray is so essential hmm. to drive solutions to what you just shared. Because I think there has to be an inherent acknowledgement of the both and yes. instead of either or, right? So yes. to, to, to the point you made, like inequitable funding is important to tackle and address and, and. sexism within the profession and within, yeah. you know, whether that's on the adult side or the kid side, is also yes. important to address as a form of harm. And so, you know, we can't do everything and we can't solve for everything at the same time and at the yes. same energy and commitment level. That is understood. But I do think we can have multiple priorities at the same time, right? And for mm -hmm. schools, it is the the difference in saying, you know, we want to be far more intentional this school year about how we spend our dollars. And that's mm -hmm. everything from how we establish the budget to who we procure or vend with to what we pay people in terms of compensation. Um, so, like, we can do that. We can do procurement or not procurement, but like funding and money as a priority. But mm -hmm. at the same time. We can also address, you know, equity and inequity within this other area, which may be instructional practices, right? Like, yes, we can do both. Yes. You know, we can do both, and that's okay. Um, you know, I will say that the pandemic revealed mm -hmm. a lot of things. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, for a lot of us individually and for organizations and institutions. And I personally think that in this moment, you get to see where people really stand mm -hmm. because the hype, the excitement, the momentum 
right, has dwindled away so that you can really see who's committed as individuals or institutions and who's not, you know? Um, And this is not to say that things don't come up and we get busy because we all do, right? But I do think we have to make the main thing the main thing in terms of identifying priorities and going deep within them um, and not dropping them because we unconsciously believe that it's not important, Mm. right? Like Mm. we would never drop certain school programs Mm -hmm. because they're Mm -hmm. like, they need this. Like they have to have this. Yes. So why do you drop this? Like deep down, do you kind of believe like, it's okay, we'll do it next year. Yeah. You know, that happens all the time. Now, for those that may not know, you spent time as a school leader. Yes. Where you had to juggle. Principal. I mean, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. No, I want you to talk all about that. I I, want to lead in with this. You had to juggle priorities. Mm -hmm. You were, um, you know, serving uh, what I believe, and you correct me if I'm wrong, predominantly black and brown Mm -hmm. uh, children. Yep. And so this isn't you talking as someone outside who doesn't have an experience and does not know. This isn't someone who's, who's just giving us tweetable advice and has not spent a day in the classroom. This is someone who has real life experience. And so could you, could you talk us through just a little bit of that experience and how it kind of lends itself to the work of what goes unspoken? Yeah. So I began my career as um, a classroom teacher. Mm -hmm. And um, prior to that, in college, high school and middle school, I've been a tutor. Like I literally tutored from middle school on on up. And it began as like one-on-one tutoring and then became small group to the point that in high school, I was tutoring whole groups of six to eight, like high school uh, peers for the ACT for college, you know, um, prep and just all kinds of stuff. And at that point, getting money for it (laughs) because they were older kids. Like I was a ninth grader working with 11 and 12th graders because I had taken the ACT early and got a really good score on it. And so in my mind, I'm like, I have had the seed of educating for a long time. It's been Mm -hmm. watered and nurtured. And it showed up as things over time, right? And so mm-hmm. for me, um, teaching then led to instructional coaching. Okay. That then led to becoming an assistant or vice principal. And then that led to being a school principal. Um, and so I was a resident principal and then the full principal of the, of the campus. And mm-hmm. all the experiences I had as a practitioner, informed what is written in the book, what goes unspoken. Because mm-hmm. number one, I experienced all of those things in my blackness, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the idea of like, what does it mean to be a black teacher? What does it mean mm-hmm. to be a black principal or a black assistant principal was a thing. But it also was experienced as a black woman. Right. So there's the gender piece as well as the race in navigating these roles. Mm -hmm. 
third thing was I always taught, except for one or worked, except for one stint of two years, I worked in communities that I was not from. Mm-hmm. And so the dynamic in some of those spaces of what it meant to be an outsider versus what it meant to be native was a whole thing. And so mm-hmm. navigating that in multiple spaces and getting to a point where I was embraced and received and respected from people who were native to that city meant a lot for me. And and then I dissected, like, how did I be- become a received community member versus people that they see as transplants who don't get it, who damage the heritage and and history of this space. Um, I, and so these are things I write about in the book. Like I, I write about the implications of what it means to be racially inclusive, right? racially equitable. I write about the gender pieces, just gender considerations. I write about geographic origin, how that plays into the work, right? And many other identity uh, markers that are connected to my lived experience, but also connected to what I studied in college. My undergraduate studies were uh, sociology and African-American studies were my major and I minored in education. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of years just like literally reading and understanding scholars and what they had to say about Latino studies or about the African diaspora, about X, Y, and Z. And so like the knowledge base there, in addition to my master's program, in addition to doctoral classes I took. So like there's a scholarship piece, but there's Mm -hmm. a lived experience piece from personal lived experience as a black child right? But there's a lived experience piece as an educator, right? And then there's this lens of what it means to be a consultant all across the country in lots of spaces. So I I pull all of that together in providing recommended best practices, guiding questions, right? And just considerations for anybody who's a parent, who's an education advocate, who's an educator, so teacher, principal, librarian, whoever, if you are connected to the education space and you want to know how can our schools get better when it comes to inclusion for real and from an intersectional standpoint, equity, diversity, all of that is captured within the text, which is why I chose to call it what goes unspoken, because I think we have done a beautiful job. I don't think we've materialized and manifested all the changes, but I think we've done a beautiful job in terms of discourse around racial diversity, equity, inclusion. You can find a ton of materials that that offer you insights. You can find really great uh, facilitators and subject matter experts such as yourself that are pushing people in that way. And we need it, like need it, need it, need it. And you have some people that are fraudulent out there too you know, try, attempting to do work, yeah. you know, but like in reality, I felt that there were some conversations that were not necessarily also being had. Right. And so this is an attempt to say both and yeah. like do the racial work. That is the foundation. And you got to, you can't not do it. But this yeah. book is an invitation to say, as you are doing it, what is beyond that too, yeah. right? 
that you also can be mindful of um, that speaks to the the wholeness of who our kids and adults are within the system. It makes me think of if we were to go right now to a local bakery and we were to step into a local bakery and ask uh, for their best loaf of bread and they gave it to us, whatever your preference is, no one goes there and says, I want to have, you know, that loaf with just the right amount, the best tasting yeast. Like no one goes to bread, gets bread and says, I want the yeast, right? Like, but we know it's an essential ingredient into the bread that helps it rise. And in a similar fashion, we we could look at these yet to be United States of America and feel like, well, why is this conversation all about race? Well, similar to yeast, it is the thing that has helped the bread absolutely rise. It has helped America rise to where it is because it's been an exploitative system based upon race. And so if we don't get that right, then when it comes to the layers that are beyond that, when we cut into this metaphorical bread and we try to dissect it, we can't ever get to the nitty gritty. We can't get to what it looks like to now be not just a woman, but a black woman in our educational system, whether that be a teacher, mm-hmm. a leader, mm-hmm. a student, mm-hmm. a parent, yep. a community member, yep. a board member. We can't get to that stuff yep. because we haven't properly dissected what it means to be black and that here. Part. That part. That part. What it means to be uh, Puerto Rican, yeah. Guatemalan, and the list goes on. That's you follow right. me? And because we haven't done that foundational work, it makes it so much harder to yeah. go deeper and to do things that are going to make belonging and identity formation a reality in our schools. I completely agree with you. And you know what some people do, too. And this is why I think framing is so important. Some people want to skip the racial work. Like they don't want to have the conversations mm. about race. And they just want to talk about sexual orientation. I'm like, you can't just focus in on X because that stuff, I almost said a different word, but we're on the podcast and I'm going to be clean and keep it holy. That is racial also because the realities of injustice that our family members, and when I say family, I mean like the global, you know, family members of the LGBTQ plus community experience, some of them don't experience it in the same way because they are white and queer, different than being black and queer, right? Right. And so we can't have conversations about um, justice in that way without still also having a racial conversation. Yes. You know? Yes, and to understand race, to understand racism, to understand the social construct and what it has done. I think that we do ourselves a disservice mm-hmm. when we look at it along the ter- along the lines of, well, not everything has to be, or I want to get beyond this, but I haven't done, like you can't get to 102 if you won't pass 101. You better say that. If we're going to be educators 
are going to be disruptive educators, right? Because let me, for those who might be new or this is the first time you're tuning in, the, the frequency, the, the, uh, the default mode of our schools is not serving our students. And I'd argue it is not serving our teachers and yep. leaders. Yep. It will exhaust us all. Yes. And so my call is to disrupt the status quo in a way that's better serves us all. That's right. That means we got to engage along conversations uh, like what's in your book, Crystal, Mm -hmm. along lines of culturally responsive pedagogy, along what it means to be a good human in our world. Yes. Right. Yes. And so I want to I want to kick this to you and I want you to. Um, I know we're we're getting short on time, but I want to yeah. I want to ask you if I'm an educator, right? And let's say I've read some books, right? Mm-hmm. I've I, in 2020 I did the book club, so I read the so you want to talk about race? I read uh, between the world and me. I read uh, you know how to be an anti-racist. I did those things uh-huh. in my book clubs. Miss Crystal Hardy Allen. And now you're telling me you have a book. Why should I, as an educator who's done that, now get your book? That's such a great question. One is because our world is complex. It is nuanced. And building competency and knowledge in a particular area doesn't mean that we've arrived from a holistic point of being... um, an equity advocate, right? Yeah. Or even a DEI, um, you know, subject matter expert, right? And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. this invites you to say actually three things. Number one, what is the inner work required yes. to really center and advance inclusion, equity, diversity, intersectionally? Mm-hmm. What is the inner work? Two, What are the other systems of oppression that I need to begin to analyze, right? Be mindful of, have a lens for as I center and advance this agenda, right? And the last thing is really insights on what could this look like in marketing and branding and school board governance and instruction and human resources or HR and And like, it's like multiple domains of, I wouldn't even say, I wouldn't say a playbook per se, but it is a guide, a true guide to say, if you are the director of HR in a school system, you need to review the whole book, but especially the chapter on DEI within HR, right? Um, and, and, And right now, within our field, you don't necessarily have practical guides to what the practices and policies could look like and be. It is more philosophical and conceptual at times, but it's not like, um, you know, as you are creating the budget for the district, here are the questions you need to ask yourself Here's this, you know, as you are bringing in vendors, here are the procurement financial pro- uh, policies that you should put in place. Yeah. Here's how you lower the insurance threshold to accommodate for this type of event. Like, I I don't think you get many 
texts that take you to that place. Yeah. Practicality. Agreed. Agreed. And it is, you know, I, I used to hear growing up, you know, uh, similar to yourself, I was raised in church and I used to hear preachers say, don't be so heavenly bound that you have no earthly good. And and what they were trying to communicate was if you live in the clouds, if you live up here, then 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 none of that practically matters with the people that it should matter with. Ooh, yes. And so if we're talking about DEI, yes. equity, justice, and all those things, and mm-hmm. all we do is live up here, yeah. then the people it should matter to, the people we should be influencing, the people mm-hmm. we should be connecting with and building yeah. with, we will miss. And so well, every time. I, and and I think, you know, to that point, I just wanna I wanna say to our audience, one, huh, get this book. <laughs> Get get this book 100%. Pre-order it now. We'll make sure we put that link in the description so you can get right to it. Um, but secondly, if this is the first time that they're hearing your brilliance, uh, how can folks get connected with you, um, follow your work, and support you? Yeah, so I am found on social media, specifically Instagram, at K dot allen dot consulting so it's k allen consulting on ig um on facebook is the name of our firm which is k allen consulting and twitter is at k allen consult um the book is on amazon barnes and noble and also books a millions uh websites and it is called what goes unspoken colon how school leaders address dei beyond race um, and it will be on the shelves of every single Barnes and Noble and Books a Million in the country on October 3rd. And so right now we are pumping up pre-order sales. There's actually a discount that Barnes and Noble is providing until April 29th. I don't know when this, um, uh, airs, but it's a 25% off discount. If you just oh. type in pre-order 25, um, but it is out there. Y'all order it. Order it for yourself, for someone else, right? For a parent, a policymaker, a school board member, a principal. Um, but I'm excited. I'm excited for people to get their hands on it and begin talking about the guiding questions, the recommendations, and things within it. Again, this is Miss Crystal Hardy Allen, my friend, a brilliant black woman who's doing amazing work. You need to grab her book. I want to make sure uh, we'll put that stuff, like I said, in the show notes. But in addition, y'all, um, what it means to to honor the work of and support a black woman in these yet to be United States. I want you every single person, if you've done nothing else for me, if you haven't liked, subscribed, followed or anything, grab this book and make up for it. Uh, support this woman, this wonderful person in her work. Uh, Thank you. And Thank you. Barbara. Absolutely. Uh, as we as we end our time, any final thoughts, anything you want to communicate? Um, and uh, I just want to say this, and I say this all the time. Yeah. Thank you for uh, being the same person offline. <laughs> thank you uh, for 
Maybe slow to return phone calls and text sometimes, but I get back to it. I get listen, to it. listen. You know what it is for me? It's like when you have DVR and you have paused the movie in the middle of it and you come back and you hit play and it's still just as good. That's that's how I view our correspondence. I know you're going to get to it and we'll hit play at some point. You know what I mean? Thank so. You. Absolutely. Absolutely. That means a lot uh, but I want to I want to honor you. Thank you for your time and thank you for coming on and speaking uh, with us. Um, and yeah, any final thoughts? And we'll, uh, My we'll final thoughts are about you. Like one gratitude that you you continue to create thought provoking, affirming and just powerful conversation spaces, Bobby. Like whether it's the IG live or there's this like anything you put your hand on doing. It pushes people to think, right? It pushes people to reflect. It equips us with the knowledge to be better, not just practitioners, but better people. And I thank you for that because it takes a certain level of courage, right? To not only say, here's what I feel led and called to do, but to actually execute it, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of nerves get annoyed. You're like, ah, will someone like it? Will they listen to it? Will they follow? Whatever. And you just keep giving us many gifts. So I thank you for that. And then the second thing I want to say is that, you know, if you're listening to this and you are in need of incredibly uh, just interactive, um, practical, and just relevant, um, customized, culturally responsive pedagogy, right? For yourself as a teacher, for your school campus, for um, your coaching of other teachers, Bobby's your guy. Like, go to him, book a consultation. What are you waiting for? Because we can't do this work alone. Um, And I think that if you are looking for coaching, if you're looking for training, if you're looking for action planning around how to make sure your school is truly responsive to the learners in front of you and the families as well, Liberation Lab. Thank you so much, Queen. I, I so appreciate you. I mean Absolutely. it. <laughs> well, I mean Listen, it. Thank y'all. You for time. I appreciate this. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time. And listen, y'all, again, uh, grab this book, put it on, and, and don't let it collect dust on your bookshelves. Let's mm-hmm. let's see our educational spaces transform because of the work of this brilliant woman right here. Thank you. And so next time, y'all, thank y'all, and uh we'll see you next time.